Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? My name is Reverend Ann Dunlap, here with you again. I'm a UCC pastor doing community ministry for racial justice and solidarity here in Denver, Colorado. You can learn more about me at fiercerevremedies.com. And I also coordinate faith work for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally. This podcast is a project of SURGE Faith. As always, I'm grateful to be with you wherever you are listening to this right now. And where am I today? Well, today I'm talking to you from the little sunroom on the back of our house, looking out onto our backyard. We call this our prayer room. We have icons and altars, and it's a space to just be. Sometimes we share a meal in here and watch the birds and squirrels hop around on the bird feeders. And our backyard is still quite bare for winter, though the iris and tulips are starting to pop up out of the ground. Before coming in here to record just now, I circled around the yard, east to south to west to north. I reminded myself that the Cheyenne and Arapaho peoples belong to this land. I said hello to all our plants and herbs that are still hibernating, soaked in some sunshine, talked to the birds, and was blessed by a miraculous sting from our nettle plant. I invite you, wherever you are, to breathe with me and circle around the wheel in your mind, east to south to west to north. Where is east from where you are? Where is south, west, north? We sit within this circle We are part of this circle. Where my people come from, what's known now as Britain and Western Europe, the circle is east and air, south and fire, west and water, north and earth. Generation and regeneration spiraling inward and outward, birth and regenerative death, with breath and transformation and visions and nourishment. We breathe into our place in this circle, this spiral, and give thanks to the one who created all. Amen. You might have noticed I always start us off with some practice like this, something that connects us back to our bodies and the land where we dwell, something that reminds us of the indigenous people who come from this land. 
In part, that's to remind myself I'm not just a voice or an intellect talking to you. I'm a creature with a body and breath, and I get nervous, and I breathe and keep going. It's to remind me I'm connected to a place, a place with a geography and a landscape and a history and a people long before Europeans colonized it. In part, it's to remind you of that, too, wherever you are, you're a creature with a body and breath and connected to a place with a complicated history. I name the Cheyenne and Arapaho and invite you to name the indigenous peoples of the land where you live to remind us that we as white people are able to be here because this land was and continues to be stolen from indigenous people stolen through theft and genocide and forced assimilation our work towards collective liberation must be rooted here in the acknowledgement of the violence of colonization and the practices of decolonizing our relationship to the land and to each other the idea that land can be stolen that land can be conquered that people can be conquered in the quest for freedom that idea comes right out of one of our texts for today. So that's what we're going to spend our time today looking at. at the text for February, uh, the week six, the Epiphany season, February 12th. Those are Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20, Psalm 119, verse 1 through 8, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9, and Matthew 5, 21 through 37. We're really going to hone in on Deuteronomy today, so let's get started. Now, actually, Deuteronomy is one of my favorite books of the whole Bible. That may sound like an odd thing to say, but it's true. I love the narrative moment it depicts. The Israelites are on the cusp of entering the promised land after liberation from slavery in Egypt, and they pause. This entire book is really one long pause, so Moses can give them their final instructions before crossing the Jordan into Canaan. Without him... The leader gets one last word. You can almost feel the people looking yearningly across to the horizon, probably wondering when Moses will stop talking so they can get on with their freedom, and yet also attentive to the instructions. I love the instructions, even the ones that don't really make sense to us anymore. I love that love of God is rooted in action, covenantally, which is to say that love in action goes both ways, between God and us. Love is not just words on paper. You have to do something. The divine has to do something. And so do we. I love the emphasis on justice and on structuring their new society in a way that protects the most vulnerable. For Deuteronomy, that's the widow, the migrant, the orphan, its workers and animals and the land. And I love how the instructions, the ifs and thens, the blessings and curses, can be summed up as, if you want to be free, 
Don't act like Egypt. If you want to be free, don't act like the empire. As our text says here in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, I set before you today life and death, thriving and adversity, blessings and curses, freedom and empire. Choose wisely. But, and you knew that was coming, right? But there's a flaw. We see it right here in the same text in verse 16. The Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. Check verse 18 too for the curse version. Possess. It may seem like a little word in these sweeping life or death verses, but it's not. The Hebrew verb yarash is used over and over and over in Deuteronomy, almost every chapter, often more than once. It's translated in the NRSV as possess, like here in 30.16 and 18, or occupy, or dispossess, as in I will possess the land and dispossess you of it. In that sense, it can also mean displace. Yerash can also mean inherit, but it's clear that what is meant in Deuteronomy is the sense of possession, of taking, of taking land from the people who live there. In fact, what is clear in Deuteronomy is that it is God who is taking the land and giving it to the Israelites to possess, to occupy, and instructing them to destroy anyone who already lives there. Here are just a few examples from the NRSV out of 71 uses of the verb. Chapter 1, verse 8. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers. Chapter 7, 1 and 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy, he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations mightier and more numerous than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. Chapter 9, verse 3. Know then today that the Lord your God is the one who crosses over before you as a devouring fire. He will defeat them and subdue them before you, so that you may dispossess and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has promised you. In chapter 31, 3. The Lord your God himself will cross over before you. He will destroy these nations before you and you shall dispossess them. Oh, can we just keep with protecting the widow and the migrant and the orphan? I like those parts. Love God with all your heart and soul and strength. Pay your workers their wages every day before sunset, those kinds of things. I don't like the idea of a conquesting, colonizing, genocidal God. And I find myself wanting to make excuses. Maybe if you're a pastor doing your text work this week or a layperson wrestling with this text, you do too. I tell myself, but. But other texts in the canon argue back at this one. Judges makes clear that the people indigenous to the land weren't actually wiped out. 
Ruth gives voice to cross-cultural solidarity. Even in Joshua, the very next thing that happens narratively, the Israelite spies discover God worshipers already in the land. But really, this text isn't about Egypt and Canaan. It's actually for much later and is about ridding Israel's religious and social practice of Assyrian, that is, imperial influence. Egypt and Canaan are just metaphors. Kick the empire out, yes! But the history of the development of Israel as a people in the ancient Near East is much more complicated. They are thought to come out of that land too and resisted imperial rule from Egypt, unlike the Canaanites who were the empire's vassals. Norman Gottwald makes a pretty convincing argument about this that makes me want to feel much better about this text. But the problem is, it doesn't matter if Gottwald is right or not. That's not the narrative we're handed. Osage scholar Robert Warrior says this in his essay, Canaanites, Cowboys, and Indians. Quote, the research of Old Testament scholars, however much it provides an answer to the historical question, the contribution of the indigenous people of Canaan to the formation and emergence of Israel as a nation, does not resolve the narrative problem. People who read the narratives read them as they are, not as scholars and experts would like them to be read and interpreted. History is no longer with us. The narrative remains. The narrative that remains is that the defining moment of liberation is divinely led conquest and genocide. That's the story we're handed. The history, whatever it was and whatever stories the ancients told, that history is no longer with us. And it does not serve us as progressive Christian folk or the broader cause of collective liberation to do what we often do as interpreters and simply claim, I believe in a loving God, so I'm going to ignore this text and how it makes me uncomfortable with what it says about God. We must wrestle with this text and the whole of the Exodus narrative that erases the experience of the Canaanites. Robert Warrior says, I read the Exodus stories with Canaanite eyes, and it is the Canaanite side of the story that has been overlooked by those seeking to articulate late theologies of liberation. Especially ignored are those parts of the story that describe Yahweh's command to mercilessly annihilate the indigenous population. We can't ignore these stories. We can't ignore this narrative. And here's why. This narrative, this story of leaving one place to seek your freedom and annihilating the people in the new place in the name of God and erasing the indigenous story, that's the story that fueled the colonization of this continent. Warrior points out that Puritan preachers often called indigenous peoples Canaanites, thus legitimizing their destruction. That's the story embedded in us as settler colonizers. That's the story that informs the theology that legitimizes the doctrine of discovery. That's the story that supports the theft of indigenous lands that continues today all over the continent, including but not limited to Standing Rock. Not only that, 
Yes, it's the theology behind border walls and Muslim bans and pipelines and environmental destruction and broken treaties and land theft, to be sure. That's easy to see. But Warrior asks us to do the even harder work of perceiving what's invisible. Indigenous scholar Andrea Smith teaches that one pillar of white supremacy is genocide. That indigenous peoples must always be disappearing to excuse theft of land and resources. Like, well, it can't be theft if no one is there, right? It's the erasure of indigenous presence, experience, knowledge, and story. Erasure, invisibility, disappeared. See, this was a hard thing for me to learn. We can look at the Exodus story and say, that violence is not okay, and still not hear the voices of the Canaanites, still keep ourselves at the center as the ones to whom the land was divinely given as our destiny manifest. Like the song says, right? This land is your land. This land is my land. How many of us heard Lady Gaga sing this at the Super Bowl on Sunday, with the U.S. flag hovering huge behind her? Immediately, white folk were praising her for her protest by using this song. But indigenous folks began to say, This land is not your land. This land is stolen land. This song erases indigenous presence and history and ways of knowing. And I sat with their words and pondered this text and how the Exodus story shows up right here. Freedom being proven by the divine possession and dispossession of land and the erasure of indigenous voices from the story. This land is my land cannot be our protest song. But what do we do? How in the world do we preach this text? Honestly, even I am left uncomfortable by the words coming out of my mouth right now. So what even is our resistance lesson for this week? I confess, there was a time when I would have chosen to focus on the choose life and smash the empire way of telling this story. I would have ignored the uncomfortable bits. In fact, I might not even notice them would not have noticed the invisibility of the Canaanites. I would have leaned hard into the feel-good, go-and-be-reconciled teaching in Matthew without doing the hard work of wrestling with this narrative. I would have done that. In fact, I have done that. The thing about being reconciled is that it presumes there was once a good relationship to begin with. As my professor and Osage scholar Dr. Tink Tinker says, when were the Christian invaders ever consiled with Indian peoples? So I think our resistance lesson from these texts this week is something like this. Preach your discomfort and your questions. Preach what is appalling about the Exodus story. If you're a lay person or not preaching right now, talk about that with your friends. And take Robert Warrior seriously and listen to the Canaanites. Listen to the indigenous people of today. 
I think that's one honest way to use the Matthew text. We as white settlers know things are not right between us and indigenous folks. We can leave the safe confines of our sanctuaries and go and listen. Listen to what indigenous folks have to say, what they are asking of us in terms of supporting indigenous knowledge and sovereignty. Our call to action includes some of those things and there are more resources at the end of the transcript as well. Finally, covenant means we get to push back at God. This means our resistance can include resisting what the Exodus story says, what God in Deuteronomy instructs, and claim this instead. Freedom cannot include conquering others and their land. We will not erase indigenous life and story. We will be accountable to indigenous sovereignty. Because if God wants us to choose life and smash the empire, well, we can remind God that the empire also loves to devour land and people. And so we refuse to do that too, God. We refuse to devour the land and its people, not even in God's name. this week supports the indigenous struggle for sovereignty at Standing Rock. It's important to note that yes, the fight is over a pipeline and the environmental damage the pipeline is already causing. But ultimately, the fight is for indigenous sovereignty. And we are accountable to indigenous leadership by naming that first and foremost. Also, these asks come directly from indigenous leaders on the ground in Standing Rock leaders to whom Surge is accountable. First of all, have your congregation and or group of friends raise funds for the struggle. Take up a special collection, host a fundraiser centering indigenous leadership, or set aside a percentage of your weekly offering. Donations can go to these three places, the Lakota People's Law Project, Last Real Indians, and or the No Dapple Global Solidarity Campaign. Links uh, for donating can be found at SoundCloud in this transcript and on our website. Second, with Trump signing an executive order to allow the Dapple pipeline to continue, militarized police violence against the water protectors has increased again. And once again, leaders are asking folks to come in solidarity. If you are able to go, and to be present in a way that honors indigenous leadership there, we are asked to go to the last child camp. Check the resources section of the transcript for an article about how white folk can show up in helpful ways. So that's your call to action this week. Shifting your resources to the, to the struggle there and even showing up physically in presence if you're able. That's your call to action as we practice accountability to indigenous peoples through collective action. And remember that the transcript this, transcript, the transcript this week will include a bunch of resources at the end to support your action. Let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. Thank you for joining me today. 
Next time we'll be taking on the text for February 26th, Transfiguration Sunday, and we'll be posting up during the week of February 19th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with me there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. The transcript is available on our website, which includes any references, credits, and copyright information. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice, and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. And until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Thank you so much.